we are launching into a new series called Greater. We are back in the book of John. And what we're going to do is we're going to see why we're calling this greater. Uh, really thematically and repeatedly during this section of John, we're going to see Jesus laying out this idea that life in him uh, is greater than whatever you want to plug in. He's going to consistently say, I am greater than this, 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 this. And we're going to see that kind of play out. If you were a part um, really of our first series in, in John, we really started back in August of uh, 2017. It even went in 2018. It was a long time ago. So listen, if you were with us, you've probably forgotten most of those things. If you weren't a part of that with us, uh, let me, I'm going to attempt to bring us all up to pace really quickly, uh, encouraging you to this week go back and read. Uh, you can find out exactly where we went uh, by reading just 11 chapters um, in John, but also going on our app to catch up on all those sermons to kind of get where we're at. But what I want to do right now is I want to re-engage our mind in this narrative that John's telling. I want us to get back in the midst of this story of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and where John is taking us on this narrative journey. Uh, the first thing I want to do is I want to frame up and remind us why this book was even written. All right, I want to keep this ever before us as we study the book of John. And the purpose of this book is given to us in John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. In most of your translations, the subtitle will say, in fact, the purpose of this book. All right, so let's read this together. John 20, 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this book is written for the sole purpose of creating belief in unbelievers, someone who is a non-believer, making them into a believer. That is the heart behind John, and that is the heart behind us walking through this um, book as a church. Uh, They're here today. There's still some in our congregation, our people, our seats, whatever you want to call it, that still do not believe. There are some here that are begrudgingly here. Maybe your wife or your husband drug you here, and you're just trying to keep peace in a home. There are some agnostics here. There are skeptics. There are doubters. There are people that have tirelessly spent their life trying to labor to earn the love of God with churchmanship, with baptism, with good deeds and works. There are those that are praying for husbands, praying for wives. There's those, God, praying for children, to save children, to make my kid believe. And I hope today that there are some of you here in that vein and that today through the reading of John, through the series that we walk through, that for the first time in your life that you would actually believe upon Jesus. That you would stop all your laborious efforts to earn God's favor. That you would see that you're a sinner, that you would repent and turn away. And that you would trust that Jesus Christ alone is the only way that you ever get God now and have abundant and eternal life with him later. That is my hope and that is my prayer. Now, the second thing I want us to remember about this book um, is we have covered chapters 1 through 11. 
Um, and chapters 1 through 11 is often called the book of signs, where we've seen the seven miracles of Jesus Christ uh, for the purpose of proving and giving evidence of his deity, that he was in fact God, sovereign over disease, death, creation. He's doing all of these things so that people would see the signs and the signs would point to something greater and it would produce belief in unbelievers. Now we also know that in the midst of these signs, it also produced some unbelief. Some people saw and believed and some people did not uh, believe. So there's some things that we'll navigate through that here. So I want to explain something as, as we walk through that um, that will kind of tie in what we're doing today. If you'll go to Bible, uh, your Bibles in chapter 12, if you'll open up there, uh, we'll get ready for this. How many of you have heard of what is called the Mandela Effect? Maybe you have. Okay, so uh, I'm not sure um, if this is legit or not. But the premise behind the Mandela effect is this, that it recognizes that we could be a people that would look back upon something, that we would have a distinct uh, memory of that. We would see something, it would be vivid, it would be clear, we would be certain of what we saw. But in reality, we actually missed what was very plain to see. All right, and I want to—I'll explain it in this way. Uh, this is the first thing. Who, who are those guys? Who's that family? You might know that. Hold on, what, one more time. Berenstein Bears, right? Would you believe it if I told you that it's not the Berenstein Bears? It's the Berenstein Bears. It is. Google it later, not now. Later. Fact check me. It's S T A I N. It's Berenstein. We all thought it was Berenstein Bears. But it wasn't. Something very plain. We just missed it. Second one here. Check out this uh, philosopher here, Forrest Gump. And he knows, he tells us the philosophy of life, doesn't he? And what does he say on this bench? Life is like a box of chocolates. Well, the reality, he didn't say that. He said life was like a box of chocolates. A little small word there, but we all missed it, right? I'm right there with you. And here's the last one to all my Star Wars nerds out there. Uh, so we have this epic moment in The Empire Strikes Back where here Darth Vader is getting ready to tell Luke who his daddy is, right? And what does he say to in this moment? What do we see? We say, what is he going to say? Star Wars nerds, come on. Luke, I am your father, right? He never said, Luke, I'm your father. He said, no, I'm your father. He didn't say Luke. So we just took that and we, we think that, we quote that, what we think was what we vividly remember happening, we all missed it. What was plain to see, we just missed it. And that's the theme of really 11 chapters so far that Jesus has done all of these miracles, these wonders, these signs. And and some people, the Jews, are walking right with him, and they missed it all because of their hardened hearts, because of their unbelief, they failed to see what was plain. All right, so we're going to see that continue to play out in this text today. As I said, you hope you're in chapter 12 with us. My hope is this, as we walk through this, is that you would not miss this. What is plain to see in the text today, what is plain to see who Jesus Christ is, I pray that none of us would miss these things. So as we get ready for the text, let me pray and get into our, uh, we'll get into our word this morning. Lord, we love you. And Father, we can say a lot of things today, and I can say a lot of words and and speak and fill in gaps around the Scripture, Uh, but God, there is no power in my words. If people are going to believe, 
if they're going to be awakened unto belief. And Father, if the the believer is going to be sustained in their belief, God, it must happen through your word. So Lord, we do that. We open it up because we're dependent upon you to do this. God, I pray today that we would um, be humble enough to, uh, Father, go through a spiritual MRI, a diagnostic of our uh, devotion to Jesus, that we would see ourselves rightly. But Father, and that you would expose uh, unbelief in us, and then Father, you would ultimately give us the cure in Jesus Christ. We love you so much, and uh, would you save today in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's look at this together, and we're not going to be able to cover the entire chapter 12 today. You guys, if you've been to church here for a long time, you know I can uh, not capable of preaching an entire chapter in one sermon, so let's go. John 12, we're going to go verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, it's important we just pause right there to see what John's doing here. Not only is John setting up the context for what the story that's, that's going to follow, he's also stopping and he's signifying a very significant transition point. Uh, now, what's happening here is the Passover is six days away. All right, now let's just remember what Passover is. It's this annual celebration that the Jews would come and they'd all come together. All Jews from all parts of the world would come together to Jerusalem to celebrate and remember what God did uh, by pouring out his wrath on um, Egypt's firstborn. It was a great display of his judgment, but also his, his grace. But he poured out wrath on the unbelieving Egyptians, took out their firstborn. Um, but for those Israelites who painted their door frames with the lamb's blood, he passed over their homes. It was a great demonstration of not only the wrath of God, but also the grace of God. That would point us ultimately to the cross. So there's this moment, they're getting ready for this celebration, this feast that they would have with the Passover, major festival. As I said, all uh, Jews would be required to be there. All right, so if you, you've got to go back a little bit at the end of chapter 11 to remember what just happened. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead. All right, And what began to happen is the word got out that Jesus is raising dead people. And that always caused a lot of friction with the chief priests, the high priests, the, the Pharisees, because that was a threat once again if people would start following Jesus. So what they did uh, in, the, in, the, in the seeking of his arrest, uh, he became Jer- Jerusalem's most wanted. And what they said is, hey, I bet we can bank that Jesus, being a Jew, will make the journey to Jerusalem for the Passover. This will be the prime spot where we can arrest Jesus Christ at finally. They can finally get this slippery Jesus and and arrest him in Jerusalem. Here's the problem. They didn't see what was actually happening above and beyond that. You would think that Jesus Christ, knowing that they would seek his arrest in Jerusalem, he would run the other way. He knew he was Jerusalem's most wanted. He knew what they were going to do. But what you see here is this, that Jesus had an appointment on the cross He had an appointment to die. He wasn't running away from Jerusalem. He was marching deeper and deeper and deeper towards the cross in Jerusalem. In his perfect and sovereign 
timing. As all of the Jews are scattering around, getting ready to slay their lambs for the Passover, Jesus Christ is coming to be the final Passover lamb, the once and for all Passover lamb who will be slain for all the sins of those who would believe. So in his perfect timing, these are all the things that are happening, although the Jews failed to see these things. Jesus therefore came. That's the language there. That's why he came, the therefore. Now, what's happening here, he's coming to a dinner He's, going to, he's on the way to Jerusalem. He stops in Bethany to a dinner at Martha and Mary's house. You know the story about Martha and Mary. We'll look at that in just a second. But um, he's sitting down at the dinner table. They're probably celebrating a dinner. You know, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. So if you raise somebody from the dead, you get probably a free meal, at least of that. So that's what we're going to see. But here's what, I, here's what we're going to, I'm going to frame up this. We're going to see three things Um, this idea of Jesus being greater than uh, through this story here. Uh, The first one is this, that Jesus is greater than the cost. Jesus is greater than the cost. All right, it's going to cost you to follow Jesus. Jesus is greater. Let's read in two verses, two through six. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Bless her heart. There's Martha again, right? We need Martha's. But we know that Martha didn't choose the better portion, did we? Remember Mary and Martha? Mary chose the better portion to sit at the feet of Jesus while Martha was scurrying around, being a busy body. We need Martha's, but we have to be true worshipers like Mary. We'll see that in just a minute. But Mary, therefore, here she goes. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So here's the scene at the dinner table. You have Jesus reclining at the table, Martha serving, and then uh, we know that other disciples were there, Judas Iscariot's there, Um, and then we see Mary in this intense display of personal devotion to Jesus. Get up from the table, go grab a bottle of this most extravagant, expensive perfume and comes down and pours it on the feet of Jesus. And she bends down in a posture of great humiliation uh, and and wets her hair with the perfume and cleans the feet of Jesus. Now, there's a couple of things that we don't need to blow past here. This, This was not a $4.99 bottle of Axe from Walgreens that she's pouring out here. All right, this, the equivalent of the expense of this bottle of nard, about a 12-ounce bottle, was equivalent to one-day salary. So modern-day equivalent, about $25,000 maybe. This was an annual salary all come together for Mary. And she takes an entire annual salary. Imagine your annual salary. And she just pours it out on the feet of Jesus. This is personal intense devotion. We know that Mary was not a wealthy woman. 
It's not like she had like 50 bottles of nard laying around. Oh, whatever, it's just nard. No, this was something very precious to her. We don't know if it was a family heirloom. We don't know if she had been saving for the whole year. We don't know, but here's what we do know. That she took in a moment the most precious thing to her that was a tangible thing, the most valuable thing that she had, and she threw it at the feet of Jesus. She was never going to recover it, right? It's never coming back in the bottle. But she was saying in that moment, Jesus, you are greater than this valuable thing. You are greater than anything in my home that I possess in my hand, in my life. Jesus, you are greater. And in fact, she not only pours out the bottle of perfume, she's literally pouring out her life in a personal devotion. She goes down to the ground and takes her hair and is wiping the feet of Jesus with her hair. This was a Gentile slave's task, right? But she knew that Jesus Christ was greater than anything else, and it didn't even matter. That is the response of one who believes. We're getting ready to see the unbelief. Personal devotion. It was worth the cost. Jesus was greater than any cost that she could imagine. She poured out everything, and then she devoted in an extravagant form of worship here, right? This is not lukewarmness. It's not like she's just kind of sitting around, chilling. No, she's, it's personal and it's intense. She's showing that Jesus is greater than everything. But then we flip the page and we look at the unbelieving Judas Iscariot. We're told here that his name is Judas Iscariot. Why? Because there's another Judas that is one of the disciples of Jesus. So this specifically is Judas Iscariot. We know in parentheses the one that would betray him. And at first glance... Judas is kind of posing as this good steward of the church's purse. All right? He was, the, he was the money keeper. He held the church's money. So at first he's like, hey, whoa, 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 you're wasting some money here, Mary. What are you doing? You shouldn't do that. Do you know what we can do with that money? Sounds like he's being a good steward, right? That's not what's going on because we're told in the text he had no concern for the poor. He didn't care about the poor at all. And I would even go deeper than that. What he basically was saying is Jesus is not worth this. He's not greater than a $25,000 bottle of perfume on the ground. This is ridiculous, Mary. He scoffs at Mary for wasting all of this. And the ironic thing about it is that in a few short days, he would sell Jesus for $1,000. 30 shekels of silver. Why? Because for him, for Judas, money was greater than Jesus. His love for money was greater than Jesus because he saw money as greater than Jesus. This is the unbelief that's happening in the heart of Judas. He loved the money, right? He thought money could satisfy his greatest desire. We know how that ended up for Judas, right? If you don't know the story, what happened? In a few short days after the betrayal, he throws the 30 shekels back at the feet of the Pharisees, and he goes and hangs himself in a tree. Why? I mean, you just got paid, Judas. Why aren't you all satisfied now? You wanted money, right? Why? Because money cannot satisfy the soul. That's why. 
His greatest need was Jesus. And then he committed physical suicide. You see, there's a great danger in here for us, a great lesson to learn here. Do you think that Jesus is greater than money? I hope you do. How how do you show it? How do you show that Jesus is greater than money? How do you show that you're not a Judas and that you're a Mary? Easy. You tithe and you give generously above the tithe. That's it. That is it. That is, the, that is the cure, the prescription that Jesus wrote to show, to put us to the litmus test to say, do you really believe that Jesus is greater than money? Show me. Show me. Give me the first fruits of your labor. Give generously above and beyond to missionaries and causes for the cause of Christ, the advancement of the kingdom. Give. Show me that I'm greater than money. Are you that, that would be a question that you need to sit and ponder for just a minute. When you tithe, when you give generously, you're saying, Jesus, you are greater than money. When you do not tithe, when you do not give generously, you are saying money is greater than Jesus. There's no way around that, people. Listen, I love you too much to not tell you that. There is no other way around any of that situation. This is how we show that Jesus is greater. But we know why Judas took this posture, right? Judas doesn't need to just work on his relationship with Jesus, does he? He didn't need more Bible studies. He's, in fact, walked with Jesus for three years, teaching, walking with Jesus, often praying, serving people. He has been immersed in the church culture for three years. Years and yet he still doesn't get it. Why? Because he doesn't believe. So, what is the unbeliever? Here's Judas over here looking at Mary and he's scoffing at her. What is his accusation to the believer? Hey, this is extravagant. Your personal intense worship to Jesus, you're over the top, Mary. Like you're, you're like a Jesus freak, Mary. Why are you doing all this? Dial it back a little bit. I mean, give him a little bit of perfume, not the whole bottle. Get up off the ground. You're going to mess up your hair. He is accusing her of a radical, uh, extravagant form of worship. That's what the unbeliever does to the believer who's actually personally devoted to Jesus. Here's a question. Has anyone ever accused you of extravagant, intense personal devotion to Jesus. Has anyone ever said, why do you tithe? Why do you do that? It doesn't make any sense. Why do you go to church every single Sunday? More than that, why do you go two hours? Oh my gosh, this is a little intense. Dial it back a little bit. You're a Jesus freak. Why do you have to then turn around and come to a Bible study on Monday nights? Can you just kind of Damper this thing down? Has anyone ever accused you of any of those things? If not, there might be something in your devotion that's lacking. There might be some lukewarmness, some fitting into the culture where no one could even accuse you of a personal intense devotion to Jesus. Man, as we navigate through a lot of practical application in that text, in that situation, listen, 
When Jesus is greater than anything, you are willing to give him anything. Your hopes, your dreams, your career, your D1 scholarship, everything, any accumulation of trophies, he is greater than anything that you could possibly imagine. Your home, your car, anything you want to put into that blank, he's greater than all of it. Everything else will not satisfy your soul. Jesus is greater. And then when you believe that, then you get accused of personal, intense devotion to Jesus because he's greater. Let's keep going in the text. We'll see a second piece here. The second bullet I want you to see is this, that Jesus is greater than your control. All right? And and the idea here is this, that we're a people that want to control our own lives. We want to be the captain of our own ships. We want to make our plans. We want to rule our our career, where we live, where we work. Uh, We want to be the master of all of those things in our life. And when we do, when we do, we usually make a wreck of it, don't we? When it's our plans and not God's plans, when we're in control and God's not in control, that's when it totally gets off the rails, right? Let's read this together. This is in verse 9 through 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the word spread that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And as I said earlier, this would have caused a great threat to the control of the Pharisees. They were at the top of the religious totem pole. They had this hierarchy system. They were in complete authority and control of all the Jews here. Um, And then they find out that Jesus heals Lazarus. So now what do they want to do? They want to kill Jesus. They also want to kill Lazarus too. The walking dead man, right? That's what they want. They want to kill this guy because now he has a testimony. A testimony that says, I was dead, now I'm alive. Sound a little bit familiar? He wants to kill and snuff out all of those things because the chief priest were in control of everything. The Israelites were puppets. They did whatever the high priest said. Uh, They were in complete authority. They were superior in every possible way to all the people. They were like little puppets. But now Jesus Christ comes in and becomes a threat to their control. And because he's viewed as a threat to their control, they don't believe. Now, there's chief priests exist today. I think we could all agree with that. Chief priests today that believe that if they follow Jesus, if they believe in Jesus that he is a threat to their control of their life. If I follow Jesus, he will be a threat to my time. If I follow Jesus, he'll be a threat to my career. If I follow Jesus, he'll be a threat to my time. If I follow Jesus, he'll be a threat to my finances. If I follow Jesus, he's going to be a threat to my hopes, my dreams, my hobbies, 
my vacations. If that's you and you see that Jesus Christ is a threat to your control in your life, listen, there's two things. You either don't believe in Jesus and you're not saved or you need to confess and you need to repent that today. Jesus is never a threat to anything. He is not a threat to your comfort. He is not the thief. The thief is the thief who comes to kill, steal, and, and destroy all of you. He came that he may give life and give it abundantly to take control of our lives. And knowing that if we believe that Jesus is greater than anything else, we take everything that we hold so tightly in our hands, our schedule, our days, our weeks, our hours, our moments, our hobbies, everything that we hold so tightly. And when we begin to see Jesus Christ as greater than those things, we slowly start to loosen the hands. And it is in that space right there where you, got, you start to experience abundant life. Abundant life. When you see that Jesus is greater than you being in control. We know that Jeremiah 29, when he says that the, 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 the Lord plans for us. He, he is, his plans are good for us. And that when we try to make our own plans, it always gets wrecked. Today, if you're clinging tightly to control of your life, release your hands into the sovereign hands of King Jesus Christ. Let him order your life. Let him control your, your, your daytime or your schedule through the week. Let him do that. And that is where you will experience true life. Jesus is greater than your and my control. Let's go to the third one here. Jesus is greater than your comfort. Jesus is greater than your comfort, our personal comfort. Let's look at John 12, 12 through 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now this scene has been cast as this triumphant moment of unparalleled joy. You have a humble Jesus king rolling into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? And you have the people who are, our king is here. And they're throwing out palm branches, which signifies victory. They are, they're declaring that this Jesus, this king, is going to be victorious over Roman oppression. He's going to fight off all of our enemies. He's going to make my life great. Right? Palm Sunday. That's the significance of the palm here. So they, what the problem was is they had expected that their Jesus was there for the sole purpose of making their life happy, not holy. You see, Jesus didn't come to fix the world. He came to fix them. And they didn't see that. They only wanted Jesus because of what he could do for them. So because of that reason, they had unbelief. They wanted a God of comfort and not the God of the Bible. They wanted to make Jesus into a puppet that would give them and make their lives happy. They had no concern of holiness. Here's the question for you and I. Is we have to be careful of not being like the Jews here. 
Why do you follow Jesus? Do you follow Jesus because he can make your marriage better? Because he can fix your finances? Because he can get your kids off the crazy train and get them behaving? I'll follow Jesus. God, just do anything. Just fix my kids. Uh, I don't have a career. I don't know what my purpose in life is. God, if I follow you, Jesus, if I buy in all this stuff, will you give me purpose? Will you give me a job? Will you give me a spouse? I've been single for years, and I'm tired of it. Jesus, I'll do anything. Just give me a wife or give me a husband. Jesus, I've got cancer. I'll follow you if you'll take away the cancer. If there's any reason that you follow Jesus for anything other than just because you want to follow Jesus, it's called unbelief. And that's what we're seeing here. That Jesus, he's trying to not only uh, just tell you to not do that, he's saying, I'm greater than all the things I can do for you. I'm greater than all of those things. In fact, if he never gave you any of those things, all the things we just mentioned, which God can do all those things. But if he never did a single one of those things, would you still follow him? He tested Job like that, didn't he? He took it all away. I'll see if you really want me for me. If he took everything away from you today, or if he never gave you anything other than himself, would you be pleased? Would you be satisfied? I hope he doesn't take everything away from me. (laughs) That would hurt. It would sting. It would be painful. But I would not be empty because I have Jesus. And Jesus is greater than any of those things. He's greater than our comfort. You see, there's one day when the God who, who stepped off the throne of heaven, he stepped out of comfort of heaven to come down and dwell in this planet Like, no one does that, right? God himself sacrificed comfort to come down and humble himself before us so that we would live this life to see that Jesus is greater than our comfort in the hopes that one day, one day, that he would restore all things in the new heavens and the new earth, that we would have a place to dwell together where every comfort of our soul will be satisfied forever. You want comfort? Follow Jesus to future glory, and every ache of your soul will melt away, and you will never want in your entire life. Jesus is greater than your personal comfort. And I'm going to press into that moment all the more as we change service times in the next few weeks. <laughs> it's not comfortable. And I want to remind us in that moment, he's more great. He's greater than me getting up an hour earlier. He's greater than me taking this hour and moving to this hour. He's greater than all of those things. Let's have that mindset among us in Christ Jesus. Now, as we land here at the end, let me, uh, let me see if I can do a, a plea of how we land this thing and how do we go. What we've seen today is the difference between unbelief and belief. We've seen that Jesus is greater than cost, comfort, and control. If you're here today and you might be saying, why is he greater? That'd be a fair question. Like you say he's greater than money. He doesn't feel like it all the time. 
Why is he better at controlling my life than I am? Why, why, why is the life in him better than me being personally comfortable? Here's why. Here's why. Why is God greater than the cost of following him? Because he paid the ultimate price. It cost the father a son to come down out of heaven, to step down, to pay the price on the cross, fully paid, totally purchased, blood-bought people who would believe upon Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. That's why he's greater than cost. Anything else in this world that you could plug in didn't do that. Your kids didn't pay for your sins. Your job doesn't pay for it. This church didn't pay for it. Nothing on this earth under the sun has forgiven you for your sins and given you abundant and eternal life in Christ. That's why he's worth the cost. Why is Jesus greater than your control? Well, as I said, when we get our hands on things, when we make our own plans in our life, we wreck it. Why? Because no matter where we go, no matter if we move here, we move there, the problem is always with us because the problem is always us. We're right there. When we give our life over to the control of the sovereign God who has determined the days of our birth and our death and he's declared all of our days in his sovereign wonder, that is where we see Jesus Christ as greater than all things. And the God of our comfort, as I said, why is he greater than our comfort? Because he's never promised any of us comfort on this earth. This is why we suffer. This is why we hurt. This is why we ache. But he has promised us in future glory a day of comfort, an eternity of comfort for those who believe and trust in Christ. Listen, every single human on the face of the earth, their eternal destination depends on their relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no other way around to God but through Jesus Christ. So in you, you, your eternity is based upon what you do with Jesus. If you believe upon Jesus Christ, the life that he lived that you couldn't live, he died the death that you deserved, resurrected on the third day so that you could be resurrected to, to, to new life. If you believe in that, Jesus, you have life abundant and eternal but if you continue to reject this unbelief if you deny the cross you deny that Jesus Christ is the only way to God if you continue to do that you commit spiritual suicide today tomorrow and every day that you don't believe I pray that no one commits spiritual suicide I pray today today would be a day that if you're in here and there's a stirring up in your belly today, an ache in you of uncomfortability, can I get out of here? Is he calling me? Is, am I supposed to do this? I don't really. I pray that you would lean into that feeling in you because I believe that could be the God of the Bible wooing you to himself, to the Creator, to be redeemed back to God. And I pray that you would not ignore that feeling today, that you would respond and you would give your life to Christ and trust in him for the first time in your life. That is my prayer. That is my hope. Let me pray for us today. God, we love you. And Father, we just thank you for the gift of your word. The ability to have ears to hear. 
God, that is a gracious gift from you. And I pray today that this, uh, this message, this text, Father, has landed rightly where you have sovereignly placed it to hit in our congregation. We trust your complete sovereignty in it being effective. And God, in that, I, I pray and I hope that it does produce belief and awakens the dead in here today. And God, I also pray that it sustains belief in the believer. I pray that we never, ever refer to our belief and our salvation as a one-time event in our life. It is an everyday believing, an everyday preaching of the gospel to ourself. And Father, that gives evidence of true belief. We love you. We treasure you, Jesus. You are greater than everything else. Father, I pray that we are a church that begins to not only have the knowledge of that, that we would practice a personal intense devotion that shows that you are greater than all things. We pray these things in his name. Amen.